Hi friends, I'm super excited to announce that I am going to be speaking at the Health Optimization Summit in London this June 15th and 16th. I will be talking about balancing hormones, health and hustle for high achieving women. And I'm also going to be hosting a menopause panel with Dr. Mindy Pels and Dr. Stephanie Estima. So if you haven't got your ticket yet, then head over to summit.healthoptimization.com. And if you enter code ANGELA10, you'll get 10% off your ticket. There are so many amazing experts this year, uh, including Ben Greenville, Dr. Mindy Pels, Dr. Stephanie Estima, as I've mentioned, Dr. Stephen Gundry, JJ Virgin, many of whom have actually been on this show. So head over to summit.healthoptimization.com and enter code ANGELA10 at checkout and be sure to come over and say hi. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster, the show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high-performance mind, body, and lifestyle. In today's episode, I am joined by Matt Maruka, a researcher, teacher, and entrepreneur in the field of photobiology, which is the study of how light affects human health. This interview is a bit longer than normal and I highly recommend that you set aside some time to listen to it fully. I'm really grateful to Matt for giving a chunk of his time to share his extensive research on light and how we need to optimise light and our circadian rhythm to fix the machinery of our bodies, namely our mitochondria. As Matt explains, the light diet involves aligning our body with its natural circadian rhythm and in this interview he walks us through exactly how to do this. We can't fix broken spark plugs with fuel. We need to fix our mitochondria before we can fix the root issue to solving the myriad of chronic diseases that we are facing in modern times, which were not around until a few hundred years ago. The light diet explains how to do this. I really hope you enjoy this episode. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Matt. So I'm really excited to be here today with Matt Maruka, who is the founder of Raw Optics and the creator of The Light Diet. Um, Matt, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks. It's great, great to be on. I have so many questions for you. I almost don't know where to start because um, I met you in London at the Health Optimization Summit, um, a very inspiring talk. Um, but let's kind of track back a little bit into how you created the light diet and how you used light to solve the health issues that you were having um, kind of around the age of 13, 14. Mm -hmm. So when I was younger, I had a lot of issues and I think they stem largely from having been born via cesarean section and conceived in vitro. Uh, in, In other words, being conceived in a glass Petri dish as opposed to in in a uterus because of my mom's, uh, you know, I guess she had issues with fertility and so on. And therefore, I'm very grateful for the Western medical system, you know, for basically giving my life because like, there's lots of irony here where I will talk about the failures of the Western medical paradigm in treating chronic disease, but yet it's obviously good enough at some things that without, you know, things like in vitro fertilization, I wouldn't be alive or cesarean birth because due to the in vitro fertilization, I'm a triplet. Um, so, oh wow, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's more common to have triplets when you put three fertilized eggs into a, mo- into a woman or five actually, and three of us, you know, took, I guess mm-hmm. they would say. 
So anyhow, um, so, but at the same time, the effects of having a, 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 an embryo conceived in a glass dish is, it's very different than being conceived in a fallopian tube protected by the water and the mother. And, you know, because the research is turning out more and more and more that we're ultimately like beings of light, electromagnetic beings, a bunch of processes in our body starting with, you know, or one that people know, vitamin D synthesis, uh, many others are driven by different wavelengths and frequencies of light. So it's not even known to what extent um, being conceived inside of a mother with all the wavelengths and frequencies and the infrared light that her body's naturally emitting, how that contributes to the fertilization and the development of a fetus in its earliest days. But I would guess it's pretty substantial. So that combined with being born via cesarean birth and not having been exposed to the vaginal flora, which is like the way we're inoculated with all of our healthy gut flora, it was a pretty, um, you know, probably not a great way to start. And so I just was having tons of symptoms where it got me started on the journey of trying to fix my issues. And naturally, as like a curious teenager with the internet, I started off with, uh, uh, previously I had tried Western medicine naturopathy. Um, I tried seeing a gastroenterologist and an allergist and none of these things really worked. So then I got into my own hands. I started uh, taking, you know, diet as my approach, tried the paleo diet. I made some pretty significant improvement with that. Actually, I felt so much better just by changing my diet and that totally changed my worldview. And ultimately the paleo diet led me to the epipaleo diet by a, a neurosurgeon in the paleo world named Dr. Jack Cruz and his epipaleo diet, which was a seafood-based paleo diet, was also focused on optimizing our circadian rhythm and our cellular mitochondrial health to, op- to optimize overall health. And the way that this is done is with our circadian rhythm, sleep cycle, and, and light primarily mm-hmm. to really get at those more foundational mechanisms because he was sort of saying something to the tune of if you're having issues with other diets, trying to get to the root of your own diseases, here's why. It's because the mitochondria, the cellular engines are dysfunctional. And this is a result of our transition to an indoor lifestyle and not a result of the diet that we're eating today. Because again, people like myself had tried many times to heal with diet, but weren't able to get full healing and full optimal health. And so uh, that sort of led me down the path to where I am now and what I'm working on now, which is one thing I can throw in that I'm even working on now, residual effect of, of probably my entire life is that, uh, you know, the ketogenic diet, of course, I imagine you're familiar with, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So a lot of people use ketosis. Not only, of course, they started using it for like epilepsy and so on when it was first being researched and other, you know, serious illnesses. But uh, now it's obviously used commonly among many people to, to optimize their cellular function and so on. And it's very effective because fats are more electron dense than carbohydrates. They are lower in deuterium, which is a heavy isotope of hydrogen, which is basically just like a syrup for our engines. So it's sort of like a cleaner burning type of fuel source fat in general, um, based on what the research is indicating. And it makes perfect sense that so many people feel well on a fat-burning diet. However, what I had started to learn when, when learning from people like Dr. Cruz and some other researchers in this sort of deeper level, what we could call quantum biology. So rather than 
biochemistry, which is where the paleo diet experts are sort of sitting, going into quantum biology, which is how light and electromagnetism control biochemistry. And if we alter our environment in certain ways, that disrupts our biochemistry in ways that they can't explain and they can't solve, therefore. So this was like the the birth of the thing for me. But anyway, in regards to ketosis, I've been experimenting um, over the last few years, dabbling with ketosis and finding that I actually have, to this day, tremendous trouble properly utilizing ketosis. In other words, but most people would just say the simple thing. They say, oh, it doesn't work for everyone. Nothing works for everyone. Ketosis is good for some people, but not for others. And I would reject that premise um, because I know better now. I know that if someone tries to get into a full ketogenic state where they're not eating carbs, you know, they're cutting out fruits and starches, and then they have issues in their sleep and in their energy levels, which is what I actually experienced in like a two-week biohack that I've just done. It's a sign that you have serious issues um, going on in the mitochondria. It isn't just that it doesn't work for everyone. It means that there's an issue there. And especially in someone of European descent who's designed to be, at least through a part of the year, you know, burning fat naturally. There's no way we would have found carbs in Europe, in Northern Europe in the winter where my ancestors come from. It's impossible. It would have been fish, fat, and fasting through the winter like Mm -hmm. a polar bear. Um, putting on lots of fat in the summer, of course, probably, and then burning it off throughout the winter like polar bears do. They lose up to 50% of their fat every winter of their of their overall body weight, I should say. They put on so much fat. Anyhow, um, so right now, I'm in the process of hacking my mitochondria using light to do this. And uh, the, the sort of takeaway is that I had thought that I had used the light diet to sort of dial in every aspect of my phys- physiology because I felt and still feel so much better than I used to. But after doing two years of traveling and you know jet setting, cir- chronic circadian disruption, I actually set myself behind. Like I, I made progress mm-hmm. to a great extent, and then I actually set myself back. So it's sort of this process of learning what affects what, and this is why it's the, the light and the the quantum biology, the biophysics side of the equation is so much more important in my opinion than the biochemistry side because it it explains at a deeper level why the modern diseases are happening today. And it allows someone like myself to rather than just take all the food advice at face value and just um, be struggling perpetually, actually start to look deeper and start to see what other factors in my environment and lifestyle are causing me to have the the issues that I had and the things that I'm still tweaking and whatnot. So, because there's quite a few things there that you've mentioned. So when you were initially kind of tracking back and feeling that you had these symptoms, was it low energy and kind of fatigue? You didn't feel as vibrant that led you on this journey? Obviously, you've mentioned the cesarean birth and the fact that your microbiome would have been different. But specifically here, initially, you're looking at the health of your mitochondria um, and kind of your electromagnetic frequency, if you like. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, So when you were starting out... Were you noticing then that your energy was just not as vibrant maybe as other kids your age? Um, Yeah, I actually wasn't. Um, I just felt the way I felt and I assumed that that was relatively normal. I had no reference point. So that wasn't the issue for me. Um, What I was dealing with most of the time was chronic headaches. So I was having headaches all the time and I sort of figured that that wasn't totally normal, although I knew other people had headaches all the time too, but I never really looked at it in a way where it was like, oh, this is a big problem. I I never thought about it like that. I just wanted to kind of figure it out. 
And then also I had gut issues. So I would have the worst thing that I ever dealt with for myself was just chronic like gas and bloating whenever I would eat. Um, now I, I know that the trigger for that is gluten. My body would just totally get gassy and bloated from gluten, but my gut would, I should say. But, um, but again, still that isn't a, like most people would take that as like a, a surf or a root cause or root mechanism when it's really not like tons of people eat gluten every day and don't have that same reaction. So there's obviously something that's affecting my immune system differently, my gut microbiome and so on that is different than it isn't just black or white. Some people are sensitive to gluten. Some people aren't. I mean, there's, there's a whole continuum and it's, it isn't genetic either. It's caused by our environment and the way that interacts with our genes like epigenetics. So the gut issues were another thing that I was dealing with every day growing up from like as, as young as I can remember, age like five, six, seven, you know, first grade, kindergarten, going into even high school. And, um, you know, it was, it was frustrating, but not bad enough that I thought there was anything seriously wrong with me because it was all I really knew. And then also I had really bad seasonal allergies throughout that whole period. But the thing that actually triggered me to look for a, a change like a, an improvement when I was a freshman in high school was when I started getting bad breakouts of acne. So it wasn't any of the issues I was, I was actually that were most negatively affecting me. It was just vanity, um, like skin, you know, breakouts okay. that actually triggered me to look for how can I fix my, I, I actually had this weird, well, not weird, but this, uh, hypothesis that I, I, still don't know, you know, how accurate it was. It definitely wasn't spot on, but my mom had always said that, eating greasy foods can cause, you know, clogging of the pores. And, uh, you know, it's a very oversimplified oversimplification, but, uh, there's definitely a link between processed foods and skin breakouts anyhow. But I just figured based on that, when I had eaten some greasy food one day and then the next day I had a bad breakout, I figured, okay, well, maybe my gut's damaged. That was just the idea Mm -hmm. that came in my head as like a 14 year old and so, because I had that one idea that just sort of came out of, I don't even know where, um, it led me to start looking at how to heal a damaged gut. And, you know, thank God for that, because that led me to the paleo diet, which just totally, totally fixed or not fixed, but had a huge impact on the other main three issues I had been dealing with headaches, gut issues, and allergies. And I never expected that because I thought those things were genetic and that there was no way to fix them. So when I had that, like, holy like holy mm. crap basically moment but did the allergies at this point yeah. completely disappear based on on the paleo diet or were you just seeing a reduction in symptoms i had a huge reduction in symptoms definitely not completely disappeared i mean to this day depending on if i eat certain foods or if i um do certain things like you know if i get on you know airplane flights uh chronically and i'm disrupting my sleep on a regular basis I will work myself back to a point where I have more, you know, of an overactive immune system. I'm not like injecting myself and drawing blood all the time and trying to measure every single little change, but I become, you know, I've got a pretty solid list of things that disrupt the circadian rhythm and the mitochondrial health and what is called like redox potential, which is the level of our mitochondria's function. Just a general, you know, these things include uh, circadian disruption, which means disrupting our like body's natural natural clock from air travel, uh, or just even general lots of travel, even if it's by land, uh, although it's nowhere near as profound as by air. And then um, things like you know staying out late, being exposed to artificial light late at night, being exposed to tons of man-made electromagnetic radiation like mm-hmm. uh, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, cell phones, and so on. 
these things all like really negatively affect the mitochondria. So, but also because things like food sensitivities in the immune system, uh, these take time to reverse. And so, you know, because I was traveling the last two years thinking, oh, I've got this all dialed in and figured out, I actually gave myself a new food sensitivity, like to eggs. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't have an issue eating eggs before. So it's like, <laughs> it's kind of ironic because I thought I had figured these things out. And then I did the opposite of what I knew was good for me thinking, oh, I'll be fine traveling the world, going to Indonesia and Europe and California and all these different places, Mexico by planes within one year. And then sure enough, I, I, you know, felt the effect. And so I decided that I would settle down and I'm in Mexico at the moment, just really try to dial in these uh, processes and just being here three weeks so far, I'm definitely like really feeling it. I mean, it's just, it's just awesome. <laughs> but yeah, the, it, it's, um, it didn't fix the allergies a hundred percent, but the improvement was so substantial. It went from like having terrible sneezing. Uh, I, I was having terrible sneezing and itching of my eyes, ears, nose, and throat, um, constantly to basically almost nothing when I ate a very strict, clean paleo diet for just a few weeks. It was amazing. That's pretty transformational, yeah. yeah. And then, so then from there, I mean, if we talk, I just want to, before we talk about the, the light and the effect of light and how you use this, because this is super exciting, um, in terms of the mitochondria, so the mit- your own mitochondria come from your mother, right? We inherit our mitochondria from our mothers. Yeah. Um, but you, do you feel that by being kind of, a tube-based embryo initially, that that affected your mitochondria in terms of number, you know, density, quality. Um, how do you feel that that has had an impact and such a lasting impact later? I honestly couldn't say. I'm just, on that one, I'm just uh, making a, a proposition. So mm-hmm. like from, I speak with a lot of scientists just because that's, you know, my my area is to take like the most advanced science and sort of bring it out in ways that people can, can get with, I guess you could say. So uh, in speaking with these different scientists, um, the general consensus is that great scientific practice is to disclose when th- something you're sharing is like fully backed by, you know, research studies. And then when it's like partially backed and there's a bit of a jump and then when it's really not backed, um, but there's some logical underpinning to it, you know? So mm-hmm. with reg- in regards to the effect of being conceived in vitro, this is only, this is a third category. This is, there's logical underpinning to it in the sense that um, the research indicates and the clear, very solid research indicates that, for example, in our eye, our, our eye cells are very sensitive to even very small amounts of light. So tiny amounts of light can affect our body's circadian rhythm and our sleep cycle. Also, um, the stimulus for cell division, there are studies that are directly on these subjects. Um, the, the stimulus for cell division is the a pulse or a release of ultraviolet light from cells. Of, and this is very, very small amounts. So it would, and we also know that like, for example, very small changes in the, the environment in an embryo for a baby can lead to tremendous mm. negative effects. Even within the first one to two years or three years of a baby's development changes, once they're born, small changes, nutrient deficiencies can have like huge magnified effects down the road. So imagine like the first two to three days when you are just a collection of just one cell or a couple cells, mm. like any change there 
could presumably be magnified millions of times across as all the cells are multiplying and yeah. dividing. It's like a much, because the cell is literally unprotected, completely unprotected mm-hmm. at its most vulnerable that it will ever be in its entire life. And so and prolifically producing at the same time, right? Exactly. Yes. Dividing and, Rapidly yeah. dividing. And so if I'm supposed to be bathing in my mother's, you know, in fallopian tubes, in embryonic fluid, inside of her body, getting the signals that all time, all of evolution for billions of years has been sort of passing along this, you know, infrared energy, like the body emits a lot of infrared light. And it's known that infrared light is really important for uh, now the development of this basically fourth phase water in our cells. Mm -hmm. There's research showing that you know, the water in our cells, the water of life is structured in a certain way and infrared light of a wavelength of light leads to this structuring of the water. So it wouldn't be, it isn't a very far logical jump to say that being in a lab, I don't know what kind of lighting they had me under, you know, or, or any test tube baby, what they keep you under those two days that the egg and the, um, the sperm and the egg are sort of coming together, I guess, and incubating. But whatever it is, it's having a, it's going to be probably a man-made light source unless they're keeping us in the dark, which I doubt. And so that's going to have a pretty acute effect on the entire colony of mitochondria. And again, even though we're still would have gone into the mother um, after two days, like I you know, was put into my mom mm. after those two days, but that could have an effect. I'm not saying it does mm. at all. Yeah. It could have had no effect. It's just, it could have. So logically, question. yeah, based on the research, it sounds like it could. And also, so what we're talking about here is this concept of easy water um, yeah. and the effect of infrared light. So um, in terms of now, because you're obviously really closely tracking your energy levels and the light diet, what, one of the things I'm really interested in and your expertise is obviously we all live in different parts of the world. And we have different levels of exposure to sunlight. So for example, I'm based in the UK. Um, right now, we have just moved our clocks. Um, so they, they went back uh, yesterday or, or Saturday night. And what that means is that now we will see light over the next sort of month or two, pretty much only between, say, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning um, until you know, it's already dark here now at sort of five o'clock. In fact, wow. the sun starts, you see it setting around 3.50. By the time I, you know, I'm collecting my children from school, we're seeing the sun set. Um, so it's very easy for people that, certainly people that work in offices, for them to actually leave in the dark and get home in the dark. And this has a profound impact, obviously, on their health when they're in offices with artificial lighting. Um, and I guess my question to you is, what can somebody do in that environment to moderate the effects of that? Because in summer, we have it, you know, not to the same extent as, say, Sweden um, and very northern Europe, where they will then have light for almost kind of 20 hours of the day. We yeah. don't that extreme. We have these amazing long evenings. And I feel like I definitely get a reboot in summer, you know, when it's light until 10 o'clock at night and you wake up and four o'clock in the morning, it's light again. Yeah. Um, but I think that's the greatest challenge for people in, in sort of this part of the world is getting through the end of October to sort of the beginning of March where yeah. you are relying. And yeah, I guess what, what advice would you give to someone in that situation? Yeah. So I would start with trying to shed perspective on the subject or shed light on the subject, <laughs> which I would, I would say that 
it would be really smart to consider that for all of time that, you know, the last, I should say, 10,000 years, people were inhabiting Northern Europe, even longer than that. Um, mm. People have been in Northern European places and places that get very short light cycles for quite a long period of the year. And my ancestors included come from Ireland, Norway, England, Germany, France, and Italy. So there were, yeah, short, short nights or long nights and short days for a very long period of time. And we would have lived outdoors. We would have been you know, around maybe very likely around campfires or bonfires every evening, using that in the evening to, you know, sort of gain, gain extra light energy from what's stored in the wood. We can do that. And also just to, you know, have that cooking and community that the evidence indicates that that was common among almost all human tribes with the use of fire in the evening. So that's something that we're no longer doing. And that has a, has a huge benefit, kind of like a sauna to supplement or yeah, basically in a way to supplement the light of the sun when mm. it's not around. So this was like one of the ways that people naturally made it through cold climates was the use of har harnessing fire. So if you think about it from that perspective, like again, we had apparently harnessed fire as long ago as when we were based in Africa, like far, far back uh, earlier hominid ancestors. And so I would, I would say that without the use of fire, humans probably never would have been able to make life possible in Northern Europe. So the thing, one of the very forces that allowed us to live up in these climates, we're no longer using it all. So that would be one thing to consider, like how big of an effect could that have on our body? I mean, I just know that when I'm sitting in front of a bonfire in a cold evening, I, there's almost nothing that makes me feel as invigorated. Like literally I, I, you know, when I, I had exactly, you know what I'm, yeah. I saw your smile. Like when yeah, yeah, I was yeah. in my backyard, when I was living in Pennsylvania, when I was growing up, I did my last year of high school. Cause I knew this stuff by now, by then I should say, I built a bonfire pit and on the cold winter evenings, very often I would have a bonfire and just have the snow falling on my back and the, the warmth on my chest. And I almost never felt so invigorated. So one, we're not doing that anymore. So that's really important. So, I mean, the, the best thing I would recommend it for people is like get a bonfire or a fire pit, at mm -hmm. least in your house and a use fire, that yeah. every night. And that's um, something, it's funny you say that we would have like indigenously, you know, grown with that because actually we have a lovely, like massive open fire at home. And I look forward to that. That's one of the things that I yeah. psychologically adjust to and think, wow, you know, this is a time that we can light the fire and enjoy that. And you get that amazing heat, as you say. Um, yeah. That's the light that really bent, you know, positively affects the water in our cells and so on. Like the same, it's, it's very similar to the red light therapy that, you know, these, all these light panels are coming out, but it's like a million times better. It's, I mean, million is, is a total guess, but it's, mm. I would say substantially better because it's a much broader spectrum of all these red and infrared wavelengths. And, you know, obviously we know that somewhere around 660 and 880 nanometers have beneficial effects on the mitochondria and that's what they're targeting with these red light panels, but we don't know necessarily what other wavelengths affect other processes in the body that haven't yet yeah. been discovered just to, just to, you know, have the perspective on that. So that's one. Another is that in the time of, you know, before artificial lighting and before clocks, people would have 
worked from, you know, light to dark in the winter. But once it was dark, you really couldn't do anything except, you know, if you had firelight, you might have been able to extend your waking hours, but it wasn't necessarily bright enough to work a lot into the evening. And so people didn't work past the, the hours of the light. In other words, like it was, we, we lived by the sun. We didn't push our body into these hours beyond when the sun was present. And that is how we're supposed to function. That's how we're designed to function. In other words, the light of the sun powers a tremendous amount of the processes in our body. So mm-hmm. to, to now use artificial light to trick our brain into keeping the cortisol hormone, the stress hormone pumping to keep us awake um, is a huge cost, I believe, because we're powering, we're sort of tricking consciousness. We're tricking our body to remain in a state of wakefulness without the full spectrum of the light, which powers all of these different reactions going on. So this is, I think, a very big crime against our body. So again, I'm just saying this not as the the actual practical tips I would give to someone. I'm giving you perspective. Like we've really created a really Mm. totally uh, unnatural lifestyle. So the reason I add the perspective is because no matter what one does within the confines of that totally disconnected, unnatural lifestyle, we're going to be paying a consequence. We're going to be paying a price for it, whether it's in shortened lifespan or more, more likely rather than shortened lifespan, just a shorter health span. So lower quality health, even if we live longer than people did back then, because we have better food, we have better sanitation and all these other things we've, you know, through these mechanisms, we've eliminated lots of the killer, um, infectious diseases. But so all that stuff being said, the best thing to do, I think would be to, you know, follow, I see you have Tim Ferriss four hour body on the shelf. So like get the four hour work week, which you have up to the top right on your side, which is great. Get that book, build your own um, business and brand and something that you can have the freedom to live life the way you want to live and do that or move somewhere where there's longer light cycles so that the modern lifestyle, you know, constantly throughout the year, like Spain, so that the modern lifestyle is less uh, damaging and harmful, mm. you know, because because those places, at least they have longer light, uh, light cycles throughout the year where, uh, or at least they have actually the same amount of light everywhere on, you know, everyone on earth has the same amount of light. It's just the distribution throughout the year. So like the North Pole has 24 hours in the summer, but zero in the dead of the winter. But across the year, they're still getting the same amount of hours of light irradiation. It's just the distribution's different. Yeah. Same thing like in Costa Rica, you know, the days feel short if you go to Ecuador or somewhere like Ecuador or Costa Rica, because it's always 6.30 to 6.30. Like they never have the long evenings that we have in the North, but they also never have the shorter days that we have. So, you know, they're just because they're closer to the equator, the cycle's the same. But anyhow, that's another thing people could do in addition to, you know, um, <laughs> which is a little bit harder and only really for the the it's not for the weak of spirit to build your own business and guide your own course, but that mm-hmm. I say is the best option. And then if someone, you know, they have the, the job, the security, and they don't want to change it, the best thing to do, really, you can totally hack it. It's just to, um, you know, either try to do as much work as possible away from the office so that once it's getting dark, you can, you know, turn off the lighting or dim down the lighting, put on blue light blocking glasses. That's why I started a blue light blocking glasses company to sell the glasses that can help fix the circadian rhythm. Um, or main, you know, attempt to fix the circadian rhythm, depending on one's 
um, compliance with the protocols. And yeah, that's one side of things. So blocking artificial light once it gets dark uh, and also before it gets light in the morning, but then also getting as much time outdoors as possible throughout the day, even if it's cloudy and dark. Um, even if it's a cloudy day, there's still a ton of light coming through that is still very beneficial to the body's, you know, the mood. There was a study that showed that out of, I believe it was 32 patients who went and walked for an hour each day, all of the patients had seasonal affective disorder. It was, I think, 31 of them all had complete um, remission of their seasonal affective disorder. They just all felt better just from an hour walk in a day. It was, I mean, astonishing. That's amazing, isn't it? And totally yeah. doable for people. I would say, you know, go for a walk at lunchtime um, in, in the fresh air, you know, and get that natural exactly. blue light spectrum. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts in terms of like mimicking light? We were talking a bit about obviously a fire has ranges of light that maybe we don't even know all of the different spectrums that there are. But in terms of kind of mimicking things, you know, I have a, a red light that I use um, quite often in the morning. What are your thoughts around incorporating that into the day and making that transition? Is that something you would suggest people use morning and evening to try to simulate that sunrise? and sunset. And, and also yeah. then another question is how, what's the EMF exposure of that as well? Because obviously you're not getting that with firelight or candlelight. Um, mm. the kind of a double question there. Yeah. So the first, I can give you two perspectives. One is that of a mentor of mine who I learned most of this stuff from the expert in the field. And he would say, you can't mimic the sun. So to tell people that you can is, is dishonest and also to do so is futile, which sounds sort of negative. Um, but, but ultimately the sun has such a, it has a complete spectrum that powers so many processes. So really the key takeaway I would want people to have is that you really can't mimic the sun, like get outside at, le at least for an hour or two, even in a winter day to get that exposure, unfiltered, no sunglasses, contacts, glasses, or anything, minimal clothing if possible. If you can, you know, if one could do a workout, that, that's also great. But if it's just on the face and the eyes, that's still great. On a cool day, it cools the skin and cools the eyes. So we assimilate the light better, which is part of how things are designed to work up north uh, or the way we work. But um, so, so the cooling of there of the skin is actually helping with the absorption of the light. Yeah, it's essentially a good way to think about it is if you're laying on the beach in the sun in the summer, eventually the body gets very hot. But then if you go in the ocean for maybe an hour or 20 minutes, even you can get back in the sun and feel the same warmth and, you know, amazingness all over again. Now you yeah. might, the body will eventually reach like a cap where depending on, you know, how much buildup one has gotten um, prior to that sunbathing session and so on, you know, how much of a tan you already have to protect from the sun. But, you know, for me, it depends, yeah, it still, it depends on how much sun I've been getting after a couple of sessions of being in the ocean and the sun and the ocean and the sun, I've had enough sun, you know? Um, but that's, that's a good way to think about it. Cooling of, of our surfaces does allow the body to assimilate light better. And so this is a huge benefit of being in a cold region if, if we get ourselves outside. So, yeah, I would say that it's not, um, it's not a bad idea to, to try to use those red light panels and other light sources like, you know, reputable red light uh, 
red light panel manufacturers, as well as, for example, there's a company called Sperty, S-P-E-R-T-I, which makes UVB light boxes that emit the UV spectrum. These, the ultraviolet, so that someone could make vitamin D in the winter. I think that this could be very good. Um, There's a researcher named Dr. Alexander Wunsch from Germany, who's, I'd say, the the leader in this. He's definitely the leader in this research on light specifically and, you know, the effects of sunlight and also how we can use artificial sources to supplement it. And he builds devices and I would trust his devices. Those are the Mm -hmm. only ones I would really trust to really deliver nearly a full spectrum. Um, But in general, yeah, I think some of the red light panels could be great. And also a spurty lamp to get UVB. If I lived in a winter climate and I couldn't get out, I would also use one of those. And the biggest would be that's going to enable people to make their own vitamin D as if they were exposed to the sun. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Okay. And it depends on, again, it depends on various factors like one's diet and so on. But in general, if you're eating a healthy diet and you're relatively healthy, you'll be able to make vitamin D using these lamps. That's really interesting, actually, because what I find is um, when I do, I do a lot of work with kind of DNA testing and then the expression of that DNA and kind of optimizing that epigenetic expression. And, you know, some people, their vitamin D receptor gene is impaired function. And particularly in the UK, um, people can really struggle with that and having lowered vitamin D levels if they're, you know, it happens more, I find, with people whose maybe ancestry isn't originally from the United Kingdom. Um, So they come from actually more tropical climes. And therefore, they would have originally been exposed to much more sunlight, and they're maybe not as good at manufacturing vitamin D themselves. It's not they're not as good, actually. It's just that they have uh, a lot more melanin. So if you look at my skin, it's it's lighter. If you look at someone who has darker skin from the tropics, they have more melanin in the skin. And so the skin appears darker because the melanin absorbs more of the light that's hitting the skin. And therefore... The, it's a protective mechanism if you live in a place like where I am now, like Mexico. And if, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you didn't have a house to retreat into like I do uh, or shade to be under, you had to be outside, the amount of light that's shining here, especially in the summer, would be way too much for someone who's white to handle. So they have darker skin for that reason, um, which is a huge benefit if you're living in a tropical or equatorial region. But then if you move to a northerly latitude or a southerly latitude away from the tropical or equatorial region, there's no longer enough light. There's no yeah. longer that excess of light. So the mm-hmm. body takes its way, takes way longer. So between the lightest, like Irish, um, you know, freckly skin, the, mm-hmm. the palest skin to the darkest Ethiopian or Somalian skin, it's a, it takes 10 times longer for the Somalian person to make the vitamin D, or I could say the Irish person takes it's 10 times faster because they, yeah, so it's the speed as opposed to the ability. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. Ability. And then it's useful for them to use a light like um, the one you mentioned then. I would say that would be really smart. Yeah. That would Mm. be really smart. A lot of people, like I noticed just from being in Europe, a lot of people with that really, really dark skin, they even get jaundiced in their eyes, their eyes, their whites of their eyes turn yellowing and people just don't, don't have a clue of why this is. It just looks like very sick, but, um, but that would just be because they can't possibly, they're not getting anywhere near enough sun to break apart, you know, certain molecules, like particularly, you know, jaundice in the eyes and and in the body overall is a condition common in in newborn babies. And they put them under a light that has a lot of blue light because the blue light is the complementary color to that yellow pigment. And it basically breaks it down 
I believe it's called bilirubin is the name of the molecule that causes jaundice. And I would presume that it's the same thing that's happening in the eyes of those equatorial African people who move up to Europe and they, their mm-hmm. bodies aren't able to assimilate enough light to clear out that buildup. So as they're, they would, if they were in their home country. So it's, it is like the human migration away from the tropics is a big issue. If someone's skin didn't adapt, it's, it's a disappoint. It's disappointing, you know, um, but that is just like a, a physical fact that's often ignored and often it's often ignored because people are sensitive about talking about anything related to skin color and race, but it's just, mm-hmm. that's what the, this is what the research shows. And even like the top level, uh, you know, recent research papers that come out discuss that governments have been very, very, how can we say passive and neglectful of discussing the difference in vitamin D, you know, exposure times and so on because of their, you know, the, the sort of fear of touching on a racial subject such as this, but it's just like a physical fact, you know? Um, yeah, so absolutely. anyhow, that's, that's, that's a, so yeah, to, to use those types of light sources would be really smart. I would say going with the older school thing, ways of doing things like, so, like, first of all, fire being number one, uh, you know, every night or as often as possible, then sauna would be really great. Like the saunas that, you know, uh, Finnish, Swedish, and Norwegian people have used for a long time. And then things like red light panels or the UVB lamps, if you have vitamin D deficiency, which pretty much everyone does since people don't get, we don't get out enough in the summer to build it up and store it like we're designed. Mm -hmm. So I would say that these are things to, that would, that could definitely help. And I think the cool thing is that as the research becomes more and more well-known, they, there may be better and better devices that really, cause right now it's, you know, there's research showing that the, especially red light panels, there's lots of research behind these, that these do work if they're emitting the right frequencies and so on. But, um, you know, you never know when you're getting a panel manufactured, if it's actually, unless you have your own meter to measure and you have your own to meter for the right wavelengths and for the proper, uh, strength. Uh, and these meters cost, you know, upwards of 500 to $1,000. So not everyone's going to pay for that after they've already spent that much money on the panels. But um, unless you have the meters and then there's maybe one meter will test the intensity and the wavelengths, uh, the spectrum, but it might not test the flicker rate or it might not be accurate in testing the flicker. And you need a separate meter to measure the EMF. It's just not as good Mm. of a situation all around as just using fire or a sauna, in my opinion. Um, However, what we can do is we can, you know, just do that, do what we can for now in these ways. And then as the research evolves and more and more people start competing in these fields to make these products, they're going to get better and better and better at delivering the right wavelengths. And the, the results will become clearer and clearer as people use them and get the results, especially as people are sicker and sicker. When they use one of these devices, they might feel a huge benefit. Whereas if you're already pretty healthy, you might not feel like I'm in the sun so much that if I use a red light panel, I really feel no effect. But if I was like a sun deficient office worker, I might feel like, Oh my gosh, this is a game changer. This is amazing. So, cause I'm, I'm totally loaded on all the red and infrared wavelengths that I need because I'm watching the sunrise every day and sunset. So I'm getting all those wavelengths that are massively present at that time of day and throughout the rest of the day where someone who works in an office, they turn on a red light panel. I couldn't, I have no idea what they're, what that's going to feel like for them. So that's the first part of the question was, can people supplement that? Um, you were asking the others about EMFs and how do we know about the EMFs of these devices? Again, like you have to just get an EMF meter mm-hmm. and measure. Um, there's a good meter 
for EMFs called the Cornet, C-O-R-N-E-T, E-D-8-8-T plus. That's the best meter that's available on the market for measuring both radio wavelengths, radio and microwave frequencies, I should say. Um, also for measuring static electric and static magnetic fields. So radio and microwave frequencies would be like what's emitted for communication. So Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, cell towers, um, smart, anything, AirPods, anything for Mm -hmm. communication of information is either radio or microwave range. Now self-driving cars, smart meters, smart fridges, anything communication and information, data basically. Uh, Then there's electric and magnetic fields, which are emitted by basically electric fields are emitted by electrical appliances and things like computers and power lines and cords and plugs. And then uh, magnetic fields are also emitted by electrical appliances as well. So like refrigerators and so on. And um, we want to measure these things too. The things that, so like a, a, unless it's a, uh, like a smart red light panel, which they don't have yet, that would be like transmitting data to your phone. Maybe it won't be emitting the radio microwave wavelengths, but it would be emitting a magnetic and electric field. Um, so yeah, we just want to measure these things. And yeah, there's plenty of research on the EMF world, like tons of research, more than probably any other facet of the stuff that I'm fascinated by other than maybe on the effects of sunlight. But even then the EMF people have done so much research on the effects of EMFs and that is not my particular field of total expertise, mm-hmm. but I do, I have read way more about it than most. And I, I know very well that even tiny amounts of EMFs, like even what my computer is emitting just by being not grounded into an outlet right now, it's kicking off, you know, a strong electric and magnetic field because I'm wired into ethernet. At least it's not putting off the uh, radio and microwave range because I've hardwired it there. But they they were the research hundreds and hundreds actually thousands of experiments show that even even basically subtle amounts of this EMF these frequencies can disrupt cellular processes so the best ultimate strategy is like minimize exposure increase distance cuz distance um with distance these fields are exponentially decreased so this mm-hmm. is a huge great thing to do just increase distance from these fields and just yeah again <laughs> go back as as far as possible just for maximum, you know, safety. But obviously like there's things we can do rather than just being, uh, you know, afraid and being like having fear mongering going on with this stuff. The best thing is that we can strengthen our body by doing things like being in the ocean, being in the sun, getting exposure to, uh, you know, healthy cold exposure, like cold baths, ice baths, and that kind of thing. Um, Using these alternative things like sauna and fire. These are some of the things that we can use to strengthen our body. Mm-hmm. to be more resilient to these effects as well. So let's um let's talk a little bit about that there because this, you know, this is where you already are the expert on this and kind of circadian alignment as well. So if we want to optimize our day, I'm a big one for tracking and journaling and and testing and you know using my aura, looking at my sleep and basically tweaking things um to kind of maximize my my energy and my own Vibration, which I know to some people is a bit woo-woo, um, but yeah, we were talking right. earlier about you know your vibrational frequency and and using things like meditation as well. What would you say, having designed the light diet for somebody who wants to really enhance their own energetic frequency from waking up? Do you presumably you're keeping your wake up and your sleep time consistent, you know, as much as you can, despite the travel 
to the best extent you can, 365 days a year? Um, and do you have a very kind of strict morning and evening routine that you would follow um, each day? Yeah. So right now I'm in a bit of, I'm in quite a bit of an experimental phase having, I would say that all the time I was on the road traveling over the last two years, I was not very strict on my waking and morning time. The only thing that was strict was every night when the sun goes down, I put on my blue blockers. And then when the sun comes up in the morning, almost every, you know, out of two years, so 730 days, I was, um, getting the sunrise, watching the sunrise. So probably at least I'd say I hit probably uh, between probably close to 75% of all the sunrises in those, in those periods. I would be up early, even if I went to sleep a bit late so that I could reset my circadian rhythm and not lose the consistency going on there. So that's like the basis is, is getting up in the morning and going out in the light as the sun's coming up, you know, ideally a little bit before it comes up where it's still even a little bit dark and just being out. And if, if it's clear and you can get up on a rooftop or, you know, go somewhere where there's a ocean or a red lake or a river or a hill where you can watch a sunrise being close to nature, that's a huge home run or a big park mm-hmm. in London, you know, that, that would be a really big win to do things that way. So, and even to watch it on a, to be outside at that time, even on a cloudy overcast day, like we yes. did in the UK, it's still important. Yeah. You might not see the actual sunrise, but you can see the light changing. Mm-hmm. A good way to think about it is that we think it's normal that people wake up around like, you know, on average, I'd say people probably wake up around, well, people who work wake up maybe six or seven people who go to school as well. But if we didn't have those obligations, people would be waking up, I believe, at least my generation, nine or 10 a.m. in general, nine a.m., eight, between eight and 10 a.m., you know, um, that's complete circadian disruption, just to be clear. That's mm-hmm. not normal in any way. I mean, older generations, just from their habits and the way they live, maybe we'll be waking up still around five or six or seven, depending on the season. But we're living in an age of massive circadian disruption because we're having artificial light late at night. It's delaying the secretion of melatonin. Yeah. And that's delaying, it's called like a phase shift, a circadian phase shift, just shifting the phase forward so that the body doesn't get that darkness stimulus, which leads to the melatonin secretion, makes us get tired and go to sleep. And so the reason that that's a big issue is because then not only do we not have as deep repair, but also people are sleeping in. So we're missing those key hours of morning light exposure, which drives so many of our biological processes and uh, hormone secretions and so on, that that's, that's having a huge downstream effect. So like we disrupt ourselves in the evening, which disrupts the morning and then it disrupts the next Mm -hmm. evening and it's an ongoing thing. That's why recent, like, I I would say I'm quite adamant that it's really important to get up and get the sunrise. Now, there have been plenty of days where I've, you know, been really exhausted. So I decided I wanted to sleep in and I just made sure the next day I got to sleep early or that night I got to sleep early and then I got up and got the sunrise to make sure my circadian rhythm is still, you know, intact and functional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I do across the time. So, So I guess to get more specific to... What do I do now? Right now, the only things I'm, I'm really being specifically focused on getting to sleep, you know, be, between 7.30 and 9 p.m. Like nine is my absolute cutoff now where I'm, because I'm in a full on like light diet to the max regimen down here in Mexico to really see how it's going to affect my body. Because again, I've, I applied it for quite a long period of time, these, these ideas before I even had called them the light diet. Um, as I had learned these things, 
And I always did them, but in the context of traveling, going different places and so on. So I never really even got to go full on except one year when I was living in Eastern Europe in Bosnia on a foreign exchange program. And sure enough, that was the happiest and healthiest I've ever remember feeling in my life. And that was about uh, f- almost four years ago now when I was 16 in high school. And so going in, you know, going into four years now. So basically, um, I'm, I'm testing that. And so as a part of this test, it's like, as long as I make sure I'm asleep between 7.30 and 9, keeping in mind it gets dark around 6.45. So shortly thereafter, one could go to bed. Um, not that that's necessary if someone's healthy, but if someone's trying to reverse an illness or improve their health and optimize things, I think the earlier one can go to sleep, pretty mm-hmm. much the better. Um, and then, you know, I'm sort of toying with my sleep. Generally, I find that if I'm left to my own devices, I'll sleep about nine hours right now. Now, as my health gets better and better and better, I think I might feel like I only need to sleep eight. I've also got, you know, into dabbling into ancient, um, not ancient, but long practice Eastern philosophy, such as Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine. And so I've been learning from an Ayurvedic doctor and he believes, and so I give a lot of credence to these philosophies because all the stuff that I've started to learn that I think is cutting edge Western research, it turns out that they've been basically discussing for thousands of years, you know, don't eat your meals late in the evening. That's another cardinal rule is to not eat meals or anything really after 5 p.m. So the Mm -hmm. body has full time to digest everything. So that's like a cardinal rule that I pretty much stick by completely all the time. If if it comes past five or six, I just will fast like I did last night. Uh, If I haven't eaten, I'll just fast and I actually sleep really well anyhow if I fasted and skipped that meal, sleep very deeply and very tired. So I'll fall asleep right away. So um, that's really important. And then, so anyway, in Ayurveda, and they believe that if you're really dialed in like spiritually, energetically, you can even sleep four hours a night, five, six hours a night and be very optimal. So I don't know if that's accurate. This is, this is something that has been practiced for 5,000 years and it's the, one of the oldest medical systems in the world. And again, it's, it's been actually practiced all this time and applied. So I give it a lot of, I'm open-minded to these kinds mm. of things to see what they have to offer. Cause you know, they, there was uh, Aristotle said that mark of an educated mind is to be able to entertain ideas without fully accepting them. So I'm entertaining these philosophies for what they may have. But I just want to point out to someone listening to this that, um, you know, although we say eight hours is the necessary amount of time to sleep, if one is super dialed in, which most of us aren't, it's possible we don't even need that much. But for now, that's what I'm doing. I'm getting shooting for, you know, allowing about nine hours. And then I'm getting up around 530 in the morning between, between five and six to go out and be out in the light on the beach around 6, 6.15. Um, and the sun comes up around 6.45 at this time of year. So we're up really like at, at the first light. We're out on the beach, myself nice. and a couple of friends down here. And that, that's pretty much the, the specific rules that I'm following is just go to sleep very early and always wear, you know, don't eat late and always wear my blue blockers after the sun goes down and then get up and then go and basically watch the sunrise and be out in the beach early. And um, so, would I you do- wear would you wear the blockers? Okay, so for example, obviously where you are at the moment is pretty much a kind of twelve hour of light, twelve hour of darkness. Correct. Yeah. From what you're saying, so um, you know, like now, for example, it wouldn't, I wouldn't, it wouldn't have occurred to me to put my blue blockers on this early because I still feel like it's kind of late afternoon, even though it's dark. 
Or would you just religiously always say, well, if it's dark, um, then I would put them on. Yeah. That's how you maintain, that's how you maintain the circadian rhythm optimally. Like if it's dark, you put them on. And so your body, it's going to be, it's, it'll feel weird. Like you'll probably start to get an idea of, and I would also not use many lights in your house. Like you'll start to get an idea of what life was like way back when, like you had a period of long days and long hours where you can be awake all that time that that sun's out, you know, like enjoy Mm -hmm. it and get the light. You probably need to sleep fewer hours. Again, if we were all dialed into our circadian rhythm in the summer, I would, uh, based on the research, you know, with how light affects our hormones and melatonin and sleep, it's very likely that you would need to sleep those fewer hours because you have the light. You know, it's, you're going to maybe go to sleep once it gets dark later in the evening and wake up way er- really early because, again, the light's out. So you can be getting the light all those hours. And yeah. that's going to have a huge benefit for you going into the winter because you've assimilated all of this light. Again, yeah, doesn't mean you need to be sunbathing and directly in the light. Just have being outdoors at the same time that the sun is out is basically what I'm saying. It's really much bigger benefit than one would normally imagine. Just being outside as the sun is out because it's the light is still hitting our eyes, even if we're not looking right at it, even if we're in the shade, it's still affecting our body tremendously. Um, so yeah, I would even recommend in the shade. Wearing okay. Walkers. And so you, but you would suggest not kind of putting too many clothes on. I know you're sitting there like now uh, yeah. you're coming from a swim shirt off, but even in winter, would you suggest then that people are kind of not wrapping up and exposing their skin yes, to that natural absolutely. light with the cold? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that would be awesome. Now, if you're in a city, that's a tough one just because we built society around having clothes on. Like if, if one really just considers it, like clothing is almost a, pre- a pretense for society. Like if we didn't mm. have clothing to hide our animal nature, from like from one another, I probably we wouldn't have society the way that we wouldn't have cities of people running around naked because it would sort of, I believe, just my own theory totally, we would, we would throw off the, it, we wouldn't be able to take it seriously. We'd say like, what are we doing? Like, we're just animals. Why are we building buildings? What are we doing? Why are we all like stressed out working in offices? If everyone was naked, we'd be more like in our animal nature. So I think part of getting to the societies we have today, part of that buildup was the use of clothing to conceal the animal nature and so on, which has obviously, it has, it has consequences on our biology. It's simple as that. Really, it's as simple as that. So um, I really think naturism is fascinating. You know, people like the FKK in Germany, they have like a whole nudist, you know, uh, idea where they believe that have you heard of the FKK and naturism? No, I hadn't heard. I've heard of naturism, but I hadn't heard of the FKK. Well, it's just like a German um, group that, you know, they have all these beaches. Okay. And I was in Croatia and they had beaches that said FKK. So they're like welcoming the German people who are, you know, practicing this naturism. But basically, they just believe, I mean, I haven't even dug in d- into it as deep as I will over the next few years. But essentially, I met someone who's sort of an expert in the field. I guess you could say they're just very much a fan of it. And they believe that being exposed to the sun and the natural light across our whole body is really important for not just our health, but for our actual consciousness. And that getting light on our basically genital area is part of spiritual awakening. awakening. Now, this sounds like total woo-woo when I just present it on that level, probably to most people. But again, based on the research that indicates how important, there's even studies that show that sunlight, red light wavelengths in particular on a man's testicles increase testosterone production by mm-hmm. several hundred percent. And so just that alone makes it, you know, very appealing mm-hmm. and interesting that these, these philosophies that being in the sun nude is even way better than being in the sun scantily clad with just a bathing suit, that getting that, those specific areas 
has a huge impact and that at some point throughout history, we learned that covering that up sort of made ourselves more tame. Like mm-hmm. if you cut up like a, a, a when, when one neuters a dog or something like that, you know, uh, when they take the, the, the dog's testicles off, oh, yeah, yeah. that totally calms the dog down. So I would, I believe, this is my belief that that is the premise for human civilization today. Like we need to not be, I mean, I think we, could, we would all actually be elevated even to a higher level if we were getting more of this light. But it, it really is interesting that the naturists who I, who I actually just came in contact with because I was in Europe at the beaches this summer and there's lots of you know, new beaches in Europe. And I started learning and I thought, wow, this is so fascinating and aligns so much with what I've already learned. I didn't realize that some people believe it goes to this extent where just the act of being around other people in our natural state, they argue is like a, a yogic experience. It's very healthy for the brain to see other people without the facade, without a pre like these pretenses mm. of clothing. And anyhow, the, the reason I bring that up is just to point out that, that yes, I do believe the more we can get into nature and be like our wild selves, probably the higher level our consciousness is going to be, the better our brain is going to function and so on. Now, obviously that's not necessarily a leg- uh, legitimate reality for someone living in a city. So I would just say as much time as one can get on vacations to sunny places, off to the countryside, um, ultimately gearing up ideally towards moving out of cities, I would say is the smartest move. If someone loves the city life, just get outside and sit in the park and take your shirt off as much as you can. And you'll still be way, way, way better off or just spend more time outdoors, you know? Yeah. Yes, as far as wearing less clothing, like even if you just wear, if someone wears fewer layers and carries the jacket over their shoulder, just to get that cold exposure, you know, after, especially as one gets healthier after maybe, 20 minutes or even, even after five or 10 minutes of just being out in the cold, the body starts to kick up heat. Cause that's again, Definitely. what what did we do? What did we do a couple hundred years ago? Maybe we threw like bear skins or whatever around our bodies. But if someone was outside, if a modern person today had to be outside all day and all night, like our ancestors were during a UK winter or a Norwegian winter, like we would die, you know, we wouldn't be able to handle it. Most of us, but mm-hmm. that was the only choice. Like we didn't have indoors, 500 or a thousand years ago. Like it wasn't really a thing. There's no inside. Like sure. You might've had a shack during the middle ages, but like it was dead cold, you know? So you use like animal skins and things. Yeah, exactly. And animal skins, yeah, to keep warm, but you would have been cold a lot. You'd still be cold. Even if you had animal skins, the whole point is our bodies were designed and are designed where we can, especially Europeans have uh, more while Europeans, people who are not just Europeans, Inuits, people who lived in cold climates have, even better ability to tap into our own fat burning heat generating potential because mm-hmm. as mammals, warm blooded animals, uh, yeah, as a warm blooded am- animal, but are particularly our clad of mammals, the Ethereum mammals have this ability to burn our fat as free heat using these things called uncoupling proteins and mitochondria. Mm-hmm. So we, we can also burn fat and, and sugars to make energy, but we can also burn fat for, um, basically, and release the energy stored in the fat just as heat. And so this is called thermogenesis, cold thermogenesis. And so what that means is that, like, for example, in in Julius Caesar's book, where he wrote about his conquest of Gaul, I read it this summer, it was fascinating to me, not just because I love Julius Caesar and Napoleon and these conquerors, they uh, sort of inspire me to some extent. But um to see his accounts of the way people lived, the way people functioned back then, like his men could like march m- hundreds of miles 
and then stay up day and night building fortifications and then fight a battle for their lives against a very strong army that was well rested and still crush it. Like that's insane Mm. compared to what I'm physically capable of now, at least that I'm aware that I'm physically capable of and what most people are physically capable of. In other words, our environment has changed so radically that we, we don't even have a clue how, like how tamed we are as a species. I would compare this is the first time I thought of this comparison, but I would compare the, the us humans today, the average human today, again, myself included, although I'm trying to see how within my context and the mitochondria I was given by my mother, how far I can bring it away from this situation. Mm-hmm. But I would say that modern humans are to humans from a thousand or 2000 years ago, like a Caesar's time. And even before that, even the wild humans, before they started eating grains and, and moved into civilizations, we are like house cats to, you know, lions yeah, or, yeah. or jaguars or like, for example, domesticated pugs to a wolf. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's <laughs> yeah. real, like, and I would truly say that I think that's a very accurate comparison because we're both domesticated. Mm. Um, we both live in houses now. We live indoors. We've been tamed down to not function at our optimal level. And it's, it's not like necessarily a bad thing because we have a much more, I guess, in some level guarantee of longer lifespan, more security. So it's not like a bad thing in any way. It's just, why can't, you know, now that we know better, we could try to have both. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think it starts so young though, what I noticed. And it's funny because with, with kids like mine are seven, 10 and 11, and they're really responsive to all the stuff, you know, that I do in terms of kind of getting as, as natural environment as we can. But then you look at schools and they, they go the other way. So from a very young age, it's like, you know, I don't, in the UK climate and certainly in the spring and early summer, I don't see a need for my kids to be slapping on loads of sunscreen, but they will have regulations. You need to have to have a coat in the winter. You have to wear sunscreen in the summer. And we're That's kind insane. of mollycoded. It's just crazy. And you think, well, I mean, you can talk more about this because this is something I really want people um, to hear, because I'm always saying is, you know, we need to be exposed to the sun without sunscreen to create that um, melanin and vitamin to enhance D, yeah. our own for vitamin D, for vitamin D, but also to enhance our body's own natural protection from the sun. Um, yeah. You know, with the use of sunscreen, skin ca- cancer rates are, are going up yeah. exponentially. Um, but yeah, can you share a little bit on that? Because I'm always trying to tell people that, actually, you know, we need some sun exposure um, rather than just putting these chemicals on. Yeah. A good way to think about it would be to start with the question, like, why do we need UVB light to make vitamin D? You know, it's, it's such a simple, it's such a simple thing, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a very important question to ask because why would we need a certain wavelength of the sun to make a vitamin that's absolutely essential for the function of our immune system? You know, Mm -hmm. that's, if we don't need sunlight, then why would, you know, why would we have this essential vitamin or hormone? Actually, it's a hormone that we need to function. So that's the sort of where I would start off, you know, and the, the point that I try to make to people is that we evolved from, you know, throughout all of time as a being that used the light of the sun to power a lot of different processes and food was another method of gathering energy from the environment in order to become more complex and in order to drive more complexity because a piece of food that we consume 
is either coming from an animal or a plant that has been assimilating, like a plant has been assimilating light for an entire season and we can assimilate all that light in one meal. And same with an animal, they've been eating plants and assimilating the light and the energy stored in those plants for an entire lifetime. And we get that in one meal, the fat, the protein. So it allows us to build a much more complex organism by eating smaller organisms that are made of the same building blocks. It's, it's very, I'd say very smart, but that didn't eliminate the dependence of the direct dependence of light for a lot of other processes. So it's known that we make vitamin D from exposure of UVB light on our skin, UVB, these wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's, it's been now well-researched that light helps to catalyze the reactions that lead to the production of melatonin, serotonin, dopamine, and a, a huge amount of other hormones like beta endorphin, which is sort of a body, a natural painkiller in the body. So all of these things that allow us to essentially feel good, feel normal, and function optimally. For example, there's mechanisms that have been shown. I would recommend everyone who's listening to this, anyone who has these doubts that we need sunlight, should listen to Dr. Alexander Wunsch's talk, Why the Sun is Necessary for Optimal Health. He he gave, he flew to San Diego uh, to give this talk at a university, and he's done many other talks. He has them on Vimeo. So I would would defer to him for for people who really want to get in depth, because I don't want to you know, take all the time, but answering just this one question, but essentially, yes, that's, that's the first part of the explanation. The other part would be that we have, for example, mechanisms where when we're exposed to UVA light, which is another component of the sun, it causes the release of nitric oxide, which is a molecule that dilates our blood vessels so that our blood vessels come up to the surface so that we can assimilate that light and our red blood cells have pigments that absorb wavelengths of the sun, of the sun's light, not other light. They have, we have pigments that absorb light. Every single process in the body essentially is powered by different wavelengths of light. Like we have they, approximately 100,000 biochemical reactions happening in every cell every single second. So lots of reactions happening. And as far as biochemistry, it doesn't have any explanation of what would control all of these reactions and what would make sure the timing is right. What would make, how, how do org- like molecules know to go where to go? They ultimately, the, the most coherent explanation is that light is the fundamental driver behind these processes. And it's been shown that, again, in the same uh, book that in, well, textbook and research that showed that our cells uh, the, the stimulus for cell division is ultraviolet light from the cells, UV light emitted by the cells themselves. Um, it's all, these, these same researchers showed that when someone is sick, their cells are leaking more light and the light is less coherent. And then when someone is healthy, the cells are retaining light better and the light in the cells is more coherent in some mm-hmm. fashion. So, and there's a book, this book's called Light Shaping Life, Biophotons in Biology and Medicine. You can just write Light Shaping Life if you're taking these notes, but um, it's, it's a really amazing. There's so much research. There's another really great book called Health and Light, where a researcher named John Ott was studying the effects of, well, he was just doing time-lapse photography for Walt Disney for a movie. He was basically using light and air, uh, humidity concentration in the air to make plants go limp and then stand up again. And then using the light to make the plants turn side to side. 
and he would do time lapse. So slow photos every, you know, 30 seconds or so, or every few minutes. And that would ultimately make a clip of flowers that appear to be dancing side to side up and down. And he discovered that the different wavelengths of light he used, different colors affected all kinds of different plants tremendously. And then he found the same thing in animals and in humans, light would affect the ratio of male to female births in these animals. It's like the list is literally unending. It's insane. The amount of research on the subject that is just totally not known about. So to say, you know, anyone who believes that, um, who believes that the sun or light in general isn't relevant to life is just completely ignorant and uneducated to be quite frank. And, um, you know, they're probably depressed too most of the time, or they might spend a ton of time outside. And so, and if they're in good spirits, then well, it's, there's clear it's interesting why. you say that actually because it is um it's very like you know my own kind of journey. I went um and I've appreciated just how important light is to my own um, mood and my own health. So you know I um many of the listeners will be familiar with my story, but you know I started life as a corporate lawyer working in London, ridiculously long hours. You know all nights, pushing through the nights, days and nights on end. Sometimes you know I think the longest stint I ever did was an 85 hour work stretch with maybe three hours of sleep just fragmented in between. And it it was to the point that as I was walking, the floor didn't feel like it was staying level. Um, And I was exhausted and, you know, went on to have my three children and suffered terribly with just complete burnout. I had terrible postnatal depression. I um, ended up with double pneumonia fighting for my life um, in hospital and just the ramifications, which I believe was down to living a very unnatural life originally, um, you know, with exposure to extreme amounts of what we call junk light, um, totally ignoring any kind of circadian alignment, really, because that was the job. It was, you know, seen as a weakness, if you like, to sleep. Um, and that, you know, left me in pretty bad shape. And I would say that the things that have made the biggest difference to me is Yes, focusing on a healthy diet, but bigger than that really has been aligning my circadian rhythm, really valuing my sleep, and also getting outside. That's made a massive, massive difference to mood and and just my overall health and my deep sleep as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's clear that if one looks, it's clear that the effects are there. If one goes mm. outside in the sun, it's clear that the effects are there. It isn't just because you're in the sun that you feel good. It's because there's biological things happening from the light affecting the body and the brain's telling us, oh, this is good, get more of it. So it doesn't mean more is always better, of course, like being down here in Mexico, um, you know, maybe depending on how much time I'm down here, maybe a couple hours of sun exposure throughout the day is great. Maybe only 30 minutes or an hour maximum in the middle of the day when it's strongest. And then, you know, in the evening and late evening, early morning, the sun's a lot weaker, so I can tolerate more. I spend a lot of time in the water or in the shade or indoors. Um, But if I'm indoors, the best thing to do is to keep like a sliding door open or a window open so that you can still get the full spectrum of light at least coming in because the Mm -hmm. glass filters out different wavelengths like infrared, red, Um, so there's ultimately more blue light, relatively speaking, when we filter out those other wavelengths and it blocks out ultraviolet. So I I don't have it open now because there was a loud dude on a blower, like a whatever lawnmower thing. But, um, but anyhow, so yeah, these are some of the things I would generally share ultimately. So that's keeping the window open a little bit when you're inside just to allow other spectrums of light to come in. Yeah. The full spectrum of the sun. Interesting. 
So also driving then with yeah, uh, sunroof open. Yeah, crack or... is even okay. Sunroof, oh, always better to have the windows open. Yeah. I mean, it's okay. not like you need to, but but it, it just over time, all the time people spend in their cars, yeah, having the window cracked or the sunroof open, it is having a big benefit on the body. Yeah. That's time outdoors that you're wasting or not wasting, but not getting the benefit when you could be. Yeah, it's just sure. absurd to me. Like on beautiful spring days, I'll be driving and everyone has their windows up. I'm like, what is going on? Like, it's just <laughs> so they can hear their music better. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that can be the only reason. Um, I'm curious, uh, just kind of before we close, one of the things, because obviously you, you, um, you're experimenting quite a bit at the moment, um, particularly with um, being very on point with your circadian rhythm and your sleep and wake times. And you were describing going down to the, to the beach in the early morning. Um, and we touched at the beginning a little bit on kind of, you know, your own electromagnetic frequency. Um, have you... Because I've I've been I'm, and I'm in no way an expert. This is just something that I'm really experimenting with at the moment. Is um, Dr. Joe Dispenza's work, and he talks a lot about actually getting up and meditating while melatonin is still high. So kind of and activating the pineal gland and kind of doing it at sort of four a.m., um, which is a bit early. Have you experimented much with um, that? Because I know you talk about your inner light as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just yeah. wondered if you've done That's much really around that. a great question. So I was going to add when you asked about my routine, the one thing I didn't mention that I would say that's really key that I'm currently not practicing very actively, but plan to once I get the other pieces more sort of dialed in for the specific experiment I'm doing right now is to implement a very early morning meditation for however long I feel like 30 minutes, hour, two hours, whatever feels right. Um, so I think as I improve my sleep quality and so on, I will, you know, like get it more and more dialed in. I believe that I should be waking up earlier and earlier naturally, which I've in past experiments also experienced now that I'm in one time zone for a few months. I mean, I'm going to be leaving briefly for, um, you know, the holidays, but not going very far, like not crossing the oceans at least. So uh, it should be pretty accurate. And yeah, as I wake up earlier and earlier and optimize my sleep is more and more optimized, I will definitely be implementing that meditation in that early time in the morning. One of the things I learned from this Ayurvedic doctor I met when I was in Bali, who I re- referenced earlier also is that, again, he had said that we might only need four to six hours of sleep if we're super dialed in, which again, I really don't think any of us are. So I don't want someone to take that and be like, oh, I'm good. I'm only getting four to six hours of sleep. No, like most likely it's because you have a problem with your sleep. You're waking up in the middle of the night. You know, this would be getting that much sleep and feeling amazing all the time and fully rested, which, you know, someone will know if they are. And uh, without stimulants, without coffee, you know, just have to make all the disclaimers to be clear. Um, So basically, I would definitely, I would definitely do that. And I believe it would definitely have a huge benefit. You know, I really think that that is an important piece of of the thing. And so what this doctor was basically teaching me is that that is the best time to meditate. That those hours between 3 and 5 a.m. is, they call it something like the hours of God or God's Mm -hmm. hours, just because the, the energy of the earth, I guess you could say, is very peaceful. That's how they phrase it. I would say to me, it's clear anytime I'm up in those, you know, that hour or two hours before the sun comes up, it is the most calm and peaceful time ever. 
So I agree. I agree. You know, also the hours after the sun goes down, it's very relaxing when the light, because the sun, at least for me, the sun invokes, again, according to the Ayurvedic tradition, it invokes more of our pitta energy, which is the fire energy in the body, which I look forward to in my lifetime having actual research, Western research studies to go in and try to validate or attempt to look at the validity of the Ayurvedic traditions. You know, although they've been repeated for thousands of years on actual people and real life studies that we should give, I believe, credence to, some people aren't going to be open minded to that kind of stuff. And so, you know, that's their issue. But, but still, I'd like to study it with the Western scientific method anyway, because devices are getting more sensitive and we know all this stuff about light and biology. So we should be able to see what these correspond to. But I would say one of the things that sticks out is that, you know, this doctor was telling me, for example, that in the middle of the day is when we would want to eat any heavy food that we're going to have because our digestion is the strongest. The fire is the strongest because of the light being the strongest. And so this totally lines up with with the stuff I've learned, you know, that it's best to eat our biggest meal either at breakfast or even at lunch, you know, but um, like a, a decent breakfast is good for setting the circadian rhythm after watching the sunrise, um, ne- never before the sun comes up. I would never, I would recommend if spe- that's a great, great thing that we mentioned mm. for anyone who's in England getting up before the light comes up. I would definitely not eat when light is not out. I would eat my first meal after the sun comes up for sure. Always. Um, that's going to be tough for people, but that is a huge biologic tool to put food in the body when the metabolism isn't turned on. Cause light is what controls the metabolism. That's sort of the, the ultimate. Mm-hmm. Well, that's sort of how I'll close on my side with this. But but anyhow, so we can talk about that after this. But basically, likewise, as the this energy, this fire energy in the body is stronger when the sun is stronger, it, it is much more calm when the sun is not around. So those few hours before the light comes up are very calming. And again, this might sound like woo-woo for some people, I'm not saying it's 100% truth, but it fits based on the circadian rhythm that when melatonin is higher and the sun hasn't been out for many hours, there's very much stillness. And again, anyone who's up that early before the rest of the world is awake, you can feel that time. There's no disturbance in the energy. So totally, I'm all for it. It is magical. I'm all for that. I think Mm -hmm. Joe Dispenza and these guys are geniuses. I would only warn one thing that, again, I'm in the process of trying to figure this one out or trying to understand it the best that I can. Um, I am partially of the belief that if someone is biophysically sick because they live under a cell tower or you know, if someone lives, for example, great, the best example is if someone lives under a cell tower, I currently do not believe that they can Joe Dispenza or Bruce Lipton their way out of having brain cancer from living under the mm. cell tower. Like you are being affected by that stuff. Now, I do totally think that if someone applies these ideas from these two guys, Bruce Lipton and Joe Dispenza and many of the other spiritual or meditation teachers out there, they can totally offset the damage by strengthening and channeling their inner light, literally, because we have light inside of us. And the way we channel it can, like one could probably use their programs and definitely have, many people have already done this, I'm, I'm sure, because they're so popular, to heal themselves without changing any of the stuff I'm talking about. So I do believe it's possible. But if, so that I'm just giving that example. Like if someone's beyond a certain point, certain point, especially, or if they grew up with all the issues that I was dealing with growing up, sure, I could probably go all in with Bruce Lipton and Joe Dispenza's work, and I probably should, and it would probably be a very big challenge for me to overcome the traumas of my parents having divorced when I was young and all the stress that was chronically around that and so on that probably 
Now, my theory now is that that probably had a large contribution to the digestive issues and the, mm. you know, cause it affects the psyche and the, the psyche meaning soul in Greek, like it affects the psyche, it affects the soul, it affects, and that affects downstream stuff. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is I'm currently, and, and I think maybe my life's work, or at least the next decade will be looking to understand how the two interrelate, like our environment and the stuff I've talked about from, from sunlight and cold exposure and eating, you know, seafood and drinking clean water and eating a healthy diet and getting a circadian rhythm dialed and how that and improving those things affect versus improving our soul. And I think we have to kind of do both. I know people who say that you just can meditate and use Joe Dispenza and Bruce Lipton's work and other spiritual practices. If you dial in your soul and your spirit and get closer to God, it doesn't even matter the sort of lifestyle you're living from a health perspective, like a lifestyle perspective, you know, or not that it doesn't matter, but it's that the soul and the spiritual side totally outweighs the environment. So, and I'm not sure, honestly, I think they could be right. That's why I'm really open-minded to these different philosophies because based on what I've learned about the light inside of our body, I wouldn't be surprised if, cause we all have some level of light in our body, mm-hmm. even the sickest people, if we just got so dialed in that we just channeled it so effectively towards whatever part of our body was sick and, and lowered our stress levels such that, like I mentioned earlier, stressed cells, people who are stressed or sick leak more light if we just used our mind to lower the stress to just retain more light instead of trying to just bring more and more sunlight in like I'm doing now, maybe that would just solve all the stuff that I was dealing with alone without doing any other intervention. I don't know, but I think that's very worthy of research and applying both. Just so but you then, know. yeah, if you can have both, why wouldn't you? But it's interesting what you say about the light inside and how it's different because I know that um, – you know, when I had clinical depression and, and postnatally, it was that was always the cause. But each time it becomes more entrenched because your brain has a pathway and it goes there. And um, it, it's what do you mean? Each time you have a kid, it becomes worse. You're saying each time, each time I had experienced postnatal depression, yet yeah, to the point that my doctor didn't want me to have a third. Um, it was, and and I still haven't fully understood. Well, I can share with you some information about that. Like, so what happens when you have a kid, there's this essential omega-3 fatty acid for building up myelin, which is the sheathing around our nerves that is part of all of our nervous system and particularly the complex human brain. And myelin requires DHA, which is an Uh omega-3 fatty acid in order to be built properly. So the human brain is unique because it requires so much more DHA than any other brain of any other primate or even animal on earth besides basically dolphins. And so the thing is, it's, it's the more DHA a brain has essentially, the more complex it functions and the better it can function. So the most advanced and I'd say the most advanced research and theories of human brain development are those implicating the consumption of seafood to the evolution of the human brain. In other words, humans evolved into humans from apes because we were moved by changing environment to a place where our primary dietary source went from being grass, which is very low in nutrients, relatively speaking, to shellfish. So we started eating tons of absolutely nutrient and DHA, omega-3 rich shellfish. And that allowed over generations for the evolution of from apes into the first hominids, Homo erectus, Homo uh, and Neanderthal, the Neanderthals, uh, Lucy. Are, this was even before the Homo species. It was Australopithecus afarensis was the Lucy fossil that people talk about that was found. 
um, one of few fossils in the chain from ape to human because it was a coastal occurrence. So most of the bone dissolves in seawater. So most of the bone would have dissolved any of remaining fossils, which a lot of people, for example, people who are, who don't believe in the theory of evolution of us coming from apes, they have, they have a lot of evidence to not believe it because there is a very lacking fossil record. And the thing is, most people don't know that it was very likely dissolved by the sea because it was by the side of the coast. But anyway, we were eating tons of shellfish and this led to the, the evolution of the human brain. And the, the most amazing thing is that the research shows that the human brain today, we don't, we don't make DHA. We don't convert it well. Mm-hmm. In other words, it needs to come from our diet and it did come from our diet throughout all of our history. So when you have a baby, you're passing a huge amount of your DHA to your child, this omega-3. And so that is from my understanding, the primary cause of postpartum depression or postnatal depression, because you pass away so much of the molecule that is responsible for driving your human brain, the complexity and the high level of human brain function. And, And this is an example of Bruce Lipton and Joe Dispenza's work. It's amazing. Don't get me wrong. And I don't even know it nearly as deeply as I'd like to in the future, but that's not going to put more DHA into your brain. It might make better yeah, use of all the stuff that's there, but that's, that's a really great way to put it. So you kind of, we kind of need to have both, both optimizing I, the environmental. I, yeah. I agree. If we want to optimize, I think also there's a hormonal cascade as well um, with, with postnatally as well. I know Gabby Bernstein was talking about it recently about how she, cause she was really looking into it as well. And I think the DHA plays a big part. And, you know, as you said, I mean, I had three kids in four years. I think the mm-hmm. DHA depletion would have been quite significant. Very, very over that significant. Time. Yeah. And, and as you say, that's ultimately what's allowed us to evolve and, and become um, more intelligent um, over the time. But what I really noticed as well, you know, you were talking about the inner light. That for me was the biggest thing was that we have the outer light that we're exposed to and that we can see and we assimilate. But when your inner light goes, you can't notice the outer light anymore. So for me, when you're in the depths of depression, I don't know anyone listening, whether, you know, if they've experienced this, is that you can no longer distinguish. I was unaware if it was night or day, really. It was wow. all dark. It was all dark to me. Everything was darkness. I could walk outside in the bright sunshine and it wouldn't have no trigger on me at all. And that's, I think, when you're very sick, but that inner light goes. And I think like you, I'm so excited by their work because for me, I just want to cultivate that inner light. And one of the best ways I do that is just, you know, when I look in my kids' eyes, it's the most amazing a way of cultivating that light because it's so yeah. kind of magical. Um, but yeah, it's something as well that I kind of just want to research and experiment more and more. Definitely. With. Definitely. Yeah. Um, That's just one piece of it, the omega-3 DHA, but it's a very big piece of overall human brain piece, function. Yeah. So um, yeah. So anyhow... That's very good. And then the thing that I mentioned I would sort of close and wrap up on is just to point out that the ultimate, the ultimate um, thing that makes the light diet different from most other diets is that most diets are focused on addressing the fuel that's coming into our, in our cellular engine. So if we consider a car, the car has an engine that burns a hydrogen-based fuel source and reacts it with oxygen from the air and that makes water and that reaction of hydrogen with oxygen making water releases a lot of energy in the process. And the energy is primarily coming from the bonds of whatever the hydrogen molecule was attached to before. So in the case of a car engine, it's the gasoline um, and the carbon backbone 
in the gasoline. So anyhow, when we consume carbohydrates or fats, it's the same thing. There's hydrogens on a carbon backbone on a fuel source. And mm-hmm. we're putting this into our body and it's going into our cellular engines and we're breaking it down. And now, for example, if we had a car, back to the car engine, if the spark plugs in the car engine, which are a part of the ignition system, which essentially light the gasoline on fire so that once the gasoline is lit on fire, it causes a mini explosion, which pushes the pistons and they're pushed in sync because the spark plugs are firing in a certain synch- synchronization, essentially. And when those pistons are being pushed in sync, they're, they're turning basically gears and making the engine run, essentially moving the car. And so if the spark plugs in the car are, one of them is worn out, there's going to be misfiring in the engine. The car might not start properly and so on. And if someone were to try to put, to try to put premium gas into that engine as opposed to regular or fuel additives, it wouldn't fix the broken spark, spark plugs and therefore wouldn't fix the root issue causing the engine to be dysfunctional, mm-hmm. therefore causing the car to be dysfunctional, right? It's because, again, the, the mechanism they're trying to use to fix the issue isn't addressing the root mechanism that's the issue, even though they think it is. And so the same thing happens in our body. When we're trying to use premium fuel, in other words, premium diet or fuel additives like vitamins, minerals, supplements, and all these things to fix an issue that would be in our ignition system, in our spark plugs, in other words, in the machinery that we use to burn our fuel, it wouldn't fix, it it doesn't fix that mechanism. The mechanism that controls the machinery in our engines is light and our circadian rhythm and, and biophysics essentially. So people are trying to fix broken spark plugs with premium fuel in our body and it doesn't work that way. We need to use light to fix the machinery of our engines, which are these engines are called the mitochondria and the machinery is called the respiratory proteins. And once we can live, once we live back in accordance with our natural circadian rhythm, which we did for thousands of years, which is why we didn't see any of these diseases like cancer, heart disease, obesity, diabetes, Alzheimer's, depression, anxiety, uh, autoimmune diseases, and so on. Like they were almost non-existent just over a hundred years ago, hundred to 200 years ago, they were virtually non-existent. Um, until we do that, we're not going to actually fix the root issue. Like people always will say when I say that, they're like, oh, but bad food has a really big role. But like, yes, but the research is clear that these dysfunctions are mitochondrial and it's dysfunction in the mitochondrial proteins primarily more than anything in Mm. these chronic modern diseases. And there's tons of big diets coming out that are all trying to fix these, but none are really working across the board. So this is a, yeah, a different absolutely. kind of approach. And has a massive impact on things like autoimmune disorders as well. We have so mm-hmm. many of those um, mm-hmm. that have kind of... So what would you say, just to close then, your three, um, your three biggest tips for optimizing health? Well, from the light diet, the first would be to embrace the sun. So embrace the benefits of the sun, but carefully. We didn't discuss too much, but people need to build up their exposure, especially to midday sun or summer Mm -hmm. sun or equatorial sun or tropical sun. If someone takes a vacation, you need to build your exposure up like 10, 20 minutes a day max. You know, if you're for the, for the morning and the late afternoon, it's, it's not going to burn in general just because it is not as strong, but midday sun is much stronger. So we have to build that up slowly and, and you don't need too, too much, but so embracing the sun and, um, the next is avoiding artificial light at night. So blocking, blocking blue light, 
wearing blue light blocking glasses, like raw optics, the ones that we make, and we can make a discount code for your, you know, tribe and everything. So oh, that, that would be great. Discount code. And I'll link, um, yeah, I'll link to that. Cause I was, I was going to ask you in a moment. It's rawoptics.com, yeah. isn't it? And you guys, yeah, that's right. you ship all over the world. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So um, we could do that. And then, um, that could be great. And then the third thing I would say is to focus on that inner light, you know, um, yeah, that the, the under the importance of that definitely can't be understated. So for example, like I am working on something that I only recently started to realize is a big issue, which is relationships in my life. Like I'm, I'm no relationship expert, you know, I'm 20 years old, but I realized recently after interacting with more and more different uh, people and a really good friend of mine who I'm down here staying with in Mexico for a few months that like, because of my parents having, you know, their having been divorced and both having been largely occupied during my childhood, I realized I never truly developed like deep emotional connections with, with my own parents, you know? And so like I have in my, in my relationships with others, I have a very strong uh, fear of abandonment and sense of, of distrust. I have very, a very hard time trusting anyone. And so, you know, that's something that like, I didn't really realize, but the, just again, to speak to the point of Dr. Joe Dispenza and how these mm. inner light type of things affect us, how that chronic stress of, of feeling like I'm afraid, like I don't have, you know, that deep family connection that I, I didn't even realize I didn't have until recently is really, it couldn't be understated how much that chronic stress would affect the body. So I would say it behooves people and it behooves me to, to disclose like, I don't fully understand all, you know, all of how that side of things affects the body. I know a lot about the light diet side of things, mm -hmm. but that definitely has to be addressed. Um, you know, so whether it's through therapy or through, you know, meditation, through yeah. building a community, that's the kind of all the types of things that I'm interested in trying and working on. So I think so, yeah, they, um, those would be my best pieces of advice. I feel like that's the best I can, I can uh, throw out for people to, that's amazing. So embrace the sun, but slip building up slowly. Um, avoiding blue light in the evening and Especially. just sticking and wearing the blue blockers, which I must note yours uh, block way more spectrums than many of these glasses, right? Yeah. The biggest yeah. thing I'll just say on that, just for anyone who's, who's really acute to these types of things is that the biggest threat on the market are these clear lens blue blockers that you can get on Amazon or other websites, they're completely clear, the lenses. Okay. Um, and basically the issue with them is that they, they block a lot of light up to 420 nanometers, which is part of the blue spectrum of light. But the thing is that the modern devices, screens and so on are emitting blue light around the range of 455 nanometers. So if you have a lens that's blocking everything up to 420 nanometers, but nothing at 455 nanometers, they can shine. What they do, this gimmick they do is they send, they'll ship the glasses with a little blue LED that emits at 405 nanometers, so 405. And then the lens will block that completely. And people are like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But it doesn't block anything at 455 nanometers because in order to do that, the lens, it, it will cause a bit of a color change in the lens. The lens will appear slightly yellowish, like okay. a yellowish hue. 
And people often don't want that. That's why these big companies cater to people who want a completely clear lens, but it's not blocking the blue light emitted by LEDs and screens and all the problematic devices. So it's a huge gimmick. There's, we currently sell the only clear lenses that I've ever found. And that's why I worked with this manufacturer that block. They're not completely clear. That's the thing. They're near clear that block a significant portion of light, about 45% at 455 nanometers. And so as a result, our clear lenses, although on our website, they appear very clear. That's due to sort of an error in our editing, to be honest, um, which which I'm going to be getting fixed, but they do have a slight yellow hue. And the key is that they're actually providing the benefits. So that's really great. And we have like, you know, uh, free uh, or full, like free 30 day return policy. So if people don't like the glasses, they can send them right back, no risk. Um, and that kind of thing, satisfaction. Guarantee. And they look really, really good. <laughs> they look great. You've got That's some great designs. I started it because the, when I first learned about this stuff, I was in high school and I was wearing like these space alien type of goggles to parties in high school because <laughs> I wanted to block blue light and yeah. I didn't really care too much what my peers thought, but it was kind of like, I just wanted to have more normal glasses so I could be like both stylish and having the conversation opener. And it's worked really well since then. It's like a great, it's the best conversation starter ever. So like, yeah, but I go. No, they look good. And there's a, there's a big range as well. So, um, embrace the sun, block blue light, wear your blue light blockers, raw optics, um, and cultivate your inner light through the right relationships, meditation, tribe. Yeah. And be curious. Yeah. I feel like I and just feel curious, people say stay yeah. curious. Like I don't know all the answers, obviously far from it, but I've got a good amount of information on the circadian rhythm stuff and it is really important for our body and it's totally under discussed. And I imagine within the next like three to five years, you know, if I have my way, this is going to be huge. I mean, I've already gotten on to two really huge podcasts in the health world. Uh, one being Doc, uh, Ben Greenfields and the other being Kyle Kingsbury, who I, who I mentioned in the beginning that yeah. just came out today. So I think, you know, and, and other people are speaking about this as well. There's big researchers, but I want to bring it out in a more cool mainstream way. And uh, one of the issues is that Dr. Cruz, this um, mentor of mine who taught me so much about how all these pieces fit together, a lot of people weren't receptive to his way of delivering the message just because of, you know, he's, he was a, he's a clinical neurosurgeon, so he actually operates on people and he's frustrated, I'd say, that people don't understand just how important this stuff is and how he has patients he sees every day who are literally dying because of the misinformation about this. So since I don't have that same experience, I'm able to present it in a way that I find less, um, less charged in certain ways or ways that just in ways that people relate to more. Um, but, and my goal over the next few years is to just learn more and more as much as I can, so I can continue to provide the value. So if anyone wants to follow like me and what I'm doing, I'm on Instagram at the light diet. And that's, that's where people can find me. And then the business is at raw optics, R A optics, no W. And is yeah. mo- most of your work on social? Do you put that out over Instagram? I and mean, I follow you on Instagram. Yeah. Do you get out on Twitter or? I don't do so. almost any posting on social media at all. I'm focused almost exclusively on my business and doing podcasts. Okay. Yeah. Um, so people can check out our raw optics Instagram page because I don't I don't uh, do the post there myself, but I'm working on the content by, with uh, Nick, my a uh, coworker of mine who who does this work. But uh, we're working on putting out tons of really great content there so that mm-hmm. people who are interested in raw optics can just totally learn a lot about it, even Brilliant. before they decide to make an investment in themselves. So sure. yeah. I'll link to all of that um, in the show notes and to raw optics. And uh, yeah, we'll, um, we'll sort out a code as well. Um, awesome. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been really 
just nice chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been great. And for sharing all your wisdom. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources, and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body, and lifestyle.